Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Crystal Fall, I'm the editor of the Toolkit, and my guest today is the filmmaker behind my favorite film of the year, just an incredible, remarkable work, Cold War, director Pavel Pawlikowski. And today's podcast is brought to you by Focus Features, presenting Won't You Be My Neighbor from Academy Award-winning director Morgan Neville. Won't You Be My Neighbor takes an intimate look at America's favorite neighbor, Mr. Fred Rogers, who taught us a little kindness makes the world a difference. Winner of the Critics' Choice Documentary Award, for Best Documentary and nominated by the Gotham Awards, IDA Documentary Awards, Independent Spirit Awards, and Producers Guild Awards for your consideration for Best Documentary. And now my conversation with Pavel. This film is dedicated to your parents and the characters are named after your parents' names. And my sense was that, yes, it's based on their volatile relationship, but that in reading some of the things that you've said, I, I got the sense that this is more about the mystery and the gaps in what you don't know about their relationship that kind of drove you into there, rather than telling their story, more of kind of the mystery of trying to filling in what, what you don't know. Is, is that? Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the method, and that's what I like in films more and more, you know, not having things explained and not having a narrative reduced to a cause and effect, you know, where one thing leads to another. Uh, but uh, but as far as the this, the mains the underlying story is concerned, it's um, uh, it's like all my films. It's rooted in something personal, but it goes far away from it. You know, it's, it's a kind of it, it's. But but all of my films have some personal thing. You know, some relationship that that meant something, some situation I was in once upon a time. And it, but of course, I don't make autobiographical films. You know, I try to turn it into something universally interesting, um, and something also that can be told interestingly, graphically, visually, and told in a way which leaves something to the imagination as well. And I tend to do that more and more with each film. You know, I kind of become more and more elliptic, elliptical, and. Um, and try to stimulate the audience into filling in the gaps. And at first I thought it might be a kind of bold experiment, but I can see that actually it's not a problem at all, that people, if, you, if the scenes you show are strong, graphic, rich enough, uh, then people will fill in all the rest. You know? The main thing is not to bore the audience with explanations, <laughs> you know, because that usually kills cinema. Yeah, there is an element there too of I, I can almost imagine. I, I saw the film again last night. That if you did know, if your parents had left you a full, this is our story, and it, it, I, I almost wonder creatively, one feels like you couldn't have told that story. That there's an, there's an element here uh, from a creative standpoint of not having to go over details, but rather exactly it, creating distilling gaps, something right? and, and distilling it into something yeah. strong. I mean, reality is messy, you know. Actually, if you, the more closer you look at it, the more the less sense it makes, and an imposing sense on it, and some kind of logic, you know, some dramatic arc, usually leads to very bad, like biopics, you know, where you can see that this is uh, sure, surely, come on, that life is you know, it's just too messy for it to make so much sense, you know. So, uh, so yes, I mean, I try to distill it into something that that kind of that can be told filmically that has a universal resonance and that works on many levels, not just the personal, psychological, but historical, political, musical, you know, the more you can cram into these 
distilled pieces, the better, you know, and, and that's what I like in cinema. That's what kind of gives me a kick when I see it. You know? yeah, I love that the idea of omission and ellipses and it being those transitions being more powerful because the audience has had to make the connections that you have left us yeah. with. I remember watching this this documentary series in Britain, Seven Up. I don't know whether you saw yeah, it. Yeah, Michael yeah. Apted did it. I'm kind of catching up, like up the same. 56 and up now, right? It's getting more and more depressing. Yeah. Where, you know, like all lives are disastrous. <laughs> but the thrill you have of, sort of finding somebody seven years later and seeing how much they changed. Yeah. And you think sometimes it's kind of surprising and yet kind of inevitable. And sometimes it's completely shocking. Sometimes it makes complete sense. You know, every, you know, but that effect of jumping in time and discovering where, where are we now? It, it gives you a real thrill you know, when you watch it. Were there, were there any, because it, we should just step back, this film goes 49 to uh, 64, and there are jumps usually about a year or two. Some, some I think yeah. that last one is a little, a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, and uh, there, there are large transitions in the, in the couple's relationship. Uh, major things are happening off screen. Was there, there's an experiment here of how far you can push. This has been done before, but yeah. how far you can push this and um, the subtlety with which the audience is going to be able to pick up the details. Was there was there anything here where, because you, I, I ask because you went so far, mm -hmm. was there a point at which in, in the process of doing the script or making the movie you realized, that's, I gotta pull back. You know, I, I, they, they need something to hold on there. Or was there a jump that you were, were particularly nervous about? Mm, not really, you know. I mean, once you establish this method, then you just have to go all the way. <laughs> I mean, in different versions of the script, and there were about 159, uh, there were some more kind of explanatory transitional scenes or scenes that kind of explain a bit more in dialogue what happened before and after. And, and they clearly were redundant, you know. I mean, they were good to read, good for the financiers to read so they would know more or less what, what's going on. <laughs> but I knew that when I actually make the film, I'm going to cut them out. Um, and the main thing is to know yourself this, the real story, you know, what happens in, the, in these gaps. And that I and the actors n knew thoroughly, you know, mm -hmm. so it's not, it's not like you're just kind of randomly inventing scenes. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a clear transition um, in our minds. A friend of mine, a, a, a great playwright, Enda Walsh, came to see the film and he said something really perceptive. He said, this is a very strange film where the story exists outside the film and it's just you who decides which bits to show us. And, it's, uh, and, he, and he totally bought it. I mean, he thought it was kind of an unusual <laughs> procedure, but he did feel that the story had a real consistency outside the film. And, and he, he was prepared to fill in the gaps and enjoy the, these little frissons of discovering, oh, where are we now? But it's quite easy to reenact what happened in the gaps, you know, and how the characters have changed, you know, how Zula, who we saw at the beginning being a kind of survivor, scammer, you know, and, and in the meantime, when Victor leaves without her, she's grown in, in stature in, in this folk ensemble. She's a bit of a star, you know, she's much more confident, at least within Polish kind of world. Uh, so when we meet her again, it's she's... a way of saying, not quite like in America. Where exactly. <laughs> well, no, once she's we're, in we're Paris, we're, com we're, we're confident means a completely different thing. Yeah, but, uh, but, you know, but then once she kind of hits Paris, you know, she's totally, she loses all her confidence and becomes just arrogant and uh, with a great chip on her shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. 
the other the, the the relationship is such that um you know there is a volatile aspect to them there is a little there is these are two different personalities yeah. but there's also a context of of this world post post world war 2 the cold and it's titled cold yeah. war um, the thing and you i don't know that your film answers you know i think it's a mix in a context of time and, and and also this relationship but but the um, structuring it this way um, does allow us, at least, it, well, I guess this is a question, but it, for, it seems to me as if it allows us to feel the context of time in the politics a little bit more than, you know, sometimes if we see all the details of a relationship and all the messiness, mm -hmm. you, you know, shadows you, the rest. Yeah, you know, yeah. you can, you, you, you call it, you create a different cause and effect. Yeah. And not that you're undermining the personalities or what, you know, the, the dynamics here, yeah. but it does feel as if um, this structure also allows you to also um, have an influence in us to feel this time and what it feels yeah. like to be there, right? There's something in that. I didn't think of it that way, but absolutely, it, it kind of allows history in. I mean, it's always backdrop, yeah. but because we don't get bogged down in the nitty-gritty of how <laughs> narratively we got where we got this, these, these tableaus that we have in the background, they really speak volumes, you know. And that was the idea. That was also the idea behind shooting it very graphically, visually, you know. Mm -hmm. So without explaining, but telling a story that's quite intimate and a two-hander for most of it. But the background is epic all the time, and and that was the, that was the kind of paradox of the whole thing, you know. How do you tell an intimate story with a huge epic background without? being epic about it and without having a you know, musical score and, and, and showing a lot of historical mm -hmm. detail. And, and yeah, it was a kind of balancing act, you know, how to get these things to work at the same time, the personal and the epic historical. There's an element here, um, even within these tableaus, it's very boiled down filmmaking uh, and uh, the dialogue is so subtle and asking us to make connections. And, you know, I was just piecing together last night for the second time watching it, you know, it's like, the first time they, they have sex in the bedroom, and then there's the idea of the communist wanting to have an influence over the musical group and, and the type of music they're doing. And in our in Victor, there's a, a little bit of a paranoia. It's like, how did you know we're going to Berlin? Oh, talk to the minister. And, and there, you can just there, you can feel it. And suddenly, there's this river shot. And I didn't realize until last night that was really only the second time, the only time, second time we've seen them together um, as a couple. And in that one, and I know there is a cut with the rip once you go to the river, but I use this as an example. In that shot is, is the essence of their relationship and distilling it into different frames inside a camera movement. That, there's an incredible efficiency of story and you seem to do this time and time again of wanting to be able to tell a story or an essence of this in one shot and kind of mm -hmm. in those boiled down elements. Yeah. Uh, and it's incredibly effective, but I'm wondering if you could speak to, because uh, I want to break that down, but also, you know, the kind of big picture, why, the approach to that filmmakingly. From a filmmaking well, in that situation, I wanted to, uh, you're right, it, it's, it's, it's kind of re reflects the relationship, uh, but only at that moment in time. I mean, it's, and I wanted to bring together two things, because just a love scene, you know, which I needed anyway, you know, just to show the kind of chemistry between them and how easy they become together, having had, you know, physical, physical contact, in other words, sex. 
but I wanted to combine that, undercut that with the revelation that she's uh, informing on him, you know. So uh, I was like scenes that kind of carry two things about them, you know. I mean, you think it's about one thing and then it, there's a kind of twist or a joke in it. So the, the camera move and everything in that, you know, is a function of, um, of that situation. You know, it starts idyllically, you think, God, oh, this is total bliss. And, uh, and she has this incredibly erotic look at him and he's kind of daydreaming. There's this beautiful close-up. It's a very uh, great beautiful close-up. And then the close-up is disrupted right. <laughs> when, when he discovers, when she tells him that she's been informing on him. So then, you know, and then the, bodies, the body language does the job, you know. I mean, the dialogue is just... Uh, just an extra thing, but then he just rises, just she just rises, he gets up, we follow her because we tend to follow her. Mm, so this kind of, is a crane shot, very complicated in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, it was, it, it was, you know, the shot, you know, told the story, you know, with a little bit of dialogue yeah. <laughs> filling us in. Because in there, there's the, rea there's the love in the opening frame and yeah. this intimacy and this idealism and it's, it's a beautiful frame and then, in her bringing up that point, in there is there are two reactions to it, which yeah. is which is going to be there is the immediate, which is that yeah. she's been subtly, right? Yeah. But she sees this as survival. He sees this as, yeah. and, and in there is the essence of what's going to be their uh, yeah. problems yeah, around. Absolutely. And so you capture that reaction in the movement, and then there's the thing that's always going to pull him back, which yeah. is she's going to jump in the river and yeah. sing, and in yeah. and, and that what he what draws him to her. Mm. And the thing about it is the camera is doing such, so much of the lifting here in terms of the storytelling and this preciseness of the movement and the frame and the changes. That element, I have to imagine, is something that only comes with time, that only comes with, you know, you're a very talented filmmaker, you have an incredibly talented uh, cinematographer and a great cast, but nonetheless, getting those beats right and being able to do that within one shot, that's not, I can't imagine that's something that has to happen from... Uh, a lot of A, B, and C have to go into that before you get yes, there. From from experience, but also already when you imagine the scene, write it, you try to think in terms of what the body language and the camera can do. Uh, so uh, so you try to give yourself these, you know, writing script. You try to give yourself the possibility of filmmaking, mm -hmm. of, of turning it into a good shot, you know. And the possibility of telling the situation in one shot, ideally, you know, I mean, sometimes one shot plus an extra shot—that kind of, that is the, the kind of um, the payoff. Mm -hmm. um, so it comes with experience. It comes with experience of having made films where you kind of fail to do that. You know, I think, what the hell? Why do I? Why did I kind of invent a scene that I have to kind of that I can't shoot interestingly? You know, so it just. It's just learning how not to be boring, you know, how not to make films that you want to shoot scenes that you want to shoot. You know? Just making life easy for yourself already at the stage of writing and inventing. And also giving yourself the opportunity to rewrite all the time in terms of the better shot, the, the better setup, the better scene. So I kept kind of throughout the film. I mean, that scene was pretty much written exactly as it was shot, but a lot of the scenes when I came to them, I thought, God, this is really awkward, you know, let's, let's think of another way of doing it, let's or maybe scrap the scene altogether, find another one, you know. So a lot of the film I was thinking of my feet like some documentary filmmaker who's just, who doesn't have a script to worry about. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this constant toing and froing between the process of filmmaking and the needs of the story, you know, but I tried to marry the two. 
ideally ready at the screenwriting stage, but very often actually during the filming. Is this something that takes a lot of takes? Is this something that you uh, yes, I mean, th in this case, this, this wasn't so many, but maybe like this, this particular shot, maybe like 12 takes, you know, to get both actors, you know, I mean, there's no cuts, you know, so both actors have to be good, the camera with a crane shot has to work, you know, so, so there may be... The sky also has to see the sky and <laughs> waiting for the right light. I mean, mm. you know, I mean, the, I mean, light throughout was key, you know, we waited for a certain angle of sun. And, and so, so, yeah, there, there was about, you know, was about probably like 15 takes, you know, and um, trying to get everything to work, performance and image. And then, but on the other hand, when she's floating, you know, on her back and singing in Russian, looking into the skies, you know, there's only two takes because she's about to drown, you know. So, <laughs> so that, was, that was a natural end That's to that. That's a slower move. It's, uh, she floats but we the, did uh, wait for the right light, you know, yeah. so that, 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 that light does the job as well. You had said something last night uh, that really registered with me in the sense that um, lighting is often dictating the mise-en-scene in this movie versus, versus what is more common, which is... It, it, it reacting to or you know being supposed to be in service of yes I try not to approach the, the storytelling kind of industrially you know like okay this is a story and we just to cover it you know it's more it's not just lighting it's the framing it's the it's the image you build you know with the extras with the faces of the extras I mean when people say image it's not just photography you know it's it's the few props, I usually have few props, but you know, the few props that really speak, you know, they're very carefully chosen, the, 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 the extras are crucial very often, you know, well, and the lighting and, and so on. So, um, uh, so I, oh, yeah, I always try and imagine the mise-en-scene and what the scene can or can't do in terms of what the image needs, you know, so, so I think, you know, um, it's, it's a good discipline, you know, and it also you realize that you don't have to explain everything. You don't have to have shots that explain stuff, you know, if you can do it in one shot. And it's a really good discipline. It really teaches you, you know, how to, uh, how to work the mise-en-scene in terms of the visual style of the film. And this collaboration uh, with your cinematographer is something that starts months and months ahead of time, correct? Beyond, beyond yes. just a prep and visiting, but I imagine also kind of thinking about each of these. Because the, the, yes. the film, you shot in chronological order and, and the film visually evolves. Um, you know, Paris looks, is, is a totally different thing than, than, than you know, Berlin. And, and it wasn't exactly chronological. I mean, yeah. Paris, we actually shot after a lot of stuff that preceded Paris. But, but yes, I mean, with the cinematographer, but also with the production designers, you know, we're very close. Um, so for months before the film, you know, they were doing other work, you know, so, but sometimes they came to my house and, and you know, we looked through, through the visual references, you know, through some other films, through, uh, through the script. Sometimes I told them what the scenes were. Um, and so, so, you know, they were slowly kind of introduced into the world of the film. Then our trips, location scouting trips were, you know, like uh, great outings, you know, where we just spent time together and ate and drank together and <laughs> talked about the film, you know, so, so it's wonderful to have a cinematographer who is basically gives himself to the film, mm. you know, he's not counting, you know, <laughs> like I've worked 12, 10 days here, 12 days there, you know, basically he's a friend, you know, we live nearby. Mm, you know, it's it's Ukar Jal who worked on on Ida. Uh, he he took over Ida after you know after the other DP fell, fell, fell through. So so we have a very 
you know, familiar relationship with, with Wukash. Uh, he's much younger and he's got great energy and, and kind of is keen to learn and, you know. So, so all that was a very organic process uh, and, and I could really rely on them, you know, not, not, you know, to be part of the same organism. I, I think there's a, um, a natural uh, connection that people would want to make with Ida, your wonderful 2015 film that, that, that won the Oscar. Uh, you know, f the, their academy, they're four by three, they're black and white, it's, it's just near. But the, uh, the photography of this movie um, struck me as being quite different. Um, uh, obviously the framing, but also um, th there's a depth, there's a emphasis on a, a incredible contrast in these yeah. images. Um, I wonder if you could speak to that because I, I think there is this natural conclusion that oh, it's, it's the guy who made the four by three black yeah. and white movie, and this it, it, um, and it is the same cinematographer, and he, he, it's not that he didn't do remarkable work in in, in Ida. It's just, this is very different, right? I wonder yeah. if you could talk yeah. about. Yes, I mean, uh, th this film is very different. It's got different energy. It, it's uh, as the title suggests, it has an element of conflict. Um, so we wanted to dramatize the image you know, through contrast, through camera moves sometimes. Also there's always the kind of bigger historical picture in the background, you know. So, you know, what I mentioned earlier that, you know, we have this intimate two-hander but the, in the back there's like a big historical tableau, you know. So Ida was quite flat, you know, the composition was generally, they were quite flat. I mean, they had very kind of peculiar framing with a lot of headroom. But, um, uh, here we wanted to have a deeper perspective, you know, to compose in depth, you know. So the camera very often was a little bit higher uh, to to create uh, more layers in the background. Mm. Also, you know, it, it was you know it kind of was always in terms of what the story needed. I mean, Ida was a little bit more like a kind of. Uh, like a prayer or a meditation, you know, so the image was more or less monotonously the same, you know, whereas here there's such different worlds they go through. So, for example, in Paris, we used like a great, smaller depth of focus, longer lenses, you know, there's a kind of feeling of, although it's a beautiful world, it's a little bit suffocating, or <laughs> they feel suffocated, you know, the relationship is a little bit more tense. And that's what that, and that, that scene is where we feel that scene that that the Paris section is where we feel how much their relationship is strained yeah. being away from uh, from Poland exactly it, and that, that seems to mirror I think what you're talking about is that, that careless you know yeah. and they're in a, I mean they're actually they're in freedom you know politically they're, you know they're, they're in a free world but they're not feeling very um, they don't breathe freely you know so. And also a lot of it is urban environment, interiors. Uh, so and and people who speak a language that is that they don't feel at home in, and having the, the rules of the game, which are not the rules, <laughs> their rules, you know. So so although it's beautiful and stylish and everything, there's a feeling of uh, of of slight um, lack of oxygen, you know. So and and the depth of focus and and, and longer lenses help to achieve that. Also, because we shot a lot of the Paris scenes in Poland, the mm -hmm. interiors, you know, actually it helped us with it, to cover up, you know, possible problems with the decor, but that's a, with the production designer. But that's, you know, but that's just very uh, trivial. 
Um, so yes, and in Poland, you know, bigger, wider angles, greater depth of focus, you know, than the, you know, I mean, but it was all, it wasn't like planned, you know, you kind of, we treated it a little bit as a kind of documentary, so what do we know now? I mean, of course we had prepared locations, we built some locations, but there was a kind of open-mindedness as if we're making a film that has a life of its own rather than something that was industrially pre-planned pre and just executed. I want to make sure I have his name right. The uh, gentleman, the musician who you did the arrangement with. Um, what was his name? Masetsky. Marcin yes. Masetsky. Yeah. My understanding is, um, in some ways, he before you cast Victor, he's a little bit of an inspiration for Victor. He's yeah. got a little of the spirit of Victor in him. Um, but I, you know, I want to talk about you know he helped arrange I think most of these most of the music, correct? And only the jazz. The section. jazz. The the, the 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 fake lore, as it were. You know, the kind of orchest yeah. orchestrated folklore. Yeah are the original arrangements of a, a, a great composer and the founder of Mazovshe, for right, example, right. Segetinsky, you know, so we have to give due... Right, okay, because uh, you're taking those, you're taking Exactly, the, yeah. um, you know, these kind of fully blown arrangements were arrangements from the 50s. Mm -hmm. But I want to talk about that, because actually it was some of the, a lot of the jazz stuff that I was thinking about, that um, use of music and how it's going to play a role in, in, in the story. Uh, you know, Dennis Lim of Film Society last night had made, said it's almost like a musical. And, and, and I think what Dennis was kind of getting at there was there's an element here of uh, character expression mm -hmm. through, through yeah. song. Um, and in particular, some of these, these the kind of that middle part of the movie with some of the jazz, it's very powerful. And it's, it's sometimes um, these performances intentionally sometimes are a little bit opaque. And in the song, it's it's a, the emotion is incredibly strong. Maybe yeah. you just talk a little bit about that collaboration and the approach to music. Well, the general approach, you know, came from the fact that I set it in a musical world. You know, so the, it's, the film starts and the first half of the film is 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 defined by this their work for the folk ensemble. You know, so that's how they meet. Um, so I didn't, I wasn't very theoretical about it. I just like music and films any, anyway, you know. So and then here I had the license to really go all the way and have <laughs> a lot of music because they're, they're, they're musicians. So, um, so yes, I mean, I, I took like from this folk ensemble Mazovsha, which inspired my fictional folk ensemble Mazurek, I took three tunes, all very different, but all three had potential to become like really like very primitive source music when put in the mouths of these kind of folk performers who appear at the beginning, but also, you know, they had the potential of becoming jazz numbers, you know, so, so that was the kind of the, the musical core of the film, these three, three tunes which recur through the film in different, different um, shapes. Um, and that's and part of it is, is, is saying, I know I want these three, but I, I want some element of them to be repeated. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, some, some, some of them work subliminally, but a lot of the audience don't even recognize mm -hmm. it's the same tune, you know, like the, 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 the bebop thing that, you know, we hear when, when we first cut to Paris, you know, that's, uh, that's, an that's this wild oberic, that this, this crazy dance that they dance on stage in Warsaw, and it's the song that the woman on the accordion with pedals plays at the very beginning of the film. But I think subliminally you recognize, you know, that the music is always the same, but it keeps changing, a bit like the relationship, you know, they're always together, but they're always in different um, power relations and diff you know, there's different, uh, different um, configuration. Um, so yes, and the music constantly reflects where they are. Um, 
But apart from these three tunes that that re recur, you know, there's all sorts of other musics thrown in, you know, including "I Loves You, Porgy," mm -hmm. um, which which is a kind of helped me to invent the kind of seduction scene <laughs> without having to to um, you know to to actually shoot one. Um, you know where where Victor plays the chords of "I Love You, Porgy" and just sees whether she can intuit what the melody could be, and she intuits it brilliantly and. Something sparks clearly between them. Um, although that becomes, you know, that film gets that, that scene gets twisted, and 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 then you know, and it, and it ends with a bit of conflict between them. But 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 that was the seduction scene. Um, then the rock around the clock was a kind of uh, I used it as a kind of wedge between them, you know, because uh, it's at the moment where he's being really boring and conformist and a bit creepy. And 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 talking to all these intellectuals about hell knows what, and she's bored out of her wits, and suddenly these first chords strike, and they and she just drifts off, and and, and you know, gets into this world of of, of um, dancers. Because the idea in '57 is, I think, rock and roll is past. Is he's in his intellectual jazz world? Exactly. And exactly. And he and hasn't noticed. Yeah, he yeah, hasn't this noticed. Is, this is the and she doesn't know about rock and roll, but that it really gets to yeah. her. You know, that it really hits her. So and so yeah, and then and then. That number that she has to, that she sings in Poland on her return, this this bio bongo, you know, it's, it's a perfect, it's a really <laughs> cheesy, pseudo Latin thing that reflects that moment in her career when she can, you know, she she relaunched or Kaczmarek, her new husband, relaunched her, her career, uh, but with really kind of crappy, mediocre, silly music, you know. Although it's quite a fun song and and. and <laughs> And Joanna performs it brilliantly, but but it is a kind of decline of her of her artistic um, talents, let's say. Yeah, she right right before they hit rock bottom, right? Yeah. They, uh, you know, just creatively, I'm I'm curious is um, is that idea is like there's so many drafts of this script. Is it something where okay, I you know what beat you want here, you know what you want in the motion, and then that therefore becomes the filter with which. You, you go search for music, or is it something where you're writing to it? Like the music is part is part of the script writing phase in that sense of you need you need that element. While it helps me, you know, when I when I you know when I write uh, scripts or you know or my kind of my idea of scripts, you know, it's pretty loose stuff. But I very often put the put put the music in, the possible music. Very often it actually ends up staying in a film, but but it just kind of helps me to. To imagine the, the flavor of the scene, so I keep doing that. Yeah, it, it helps to imagine. Um, you know, my understanding is you you lived in Poland till you were fourteen, mm -hmm. um, and then in the process of of Ida, I mean, I'm sure you've been back, but I mean, in the process of Ida, there was this kind of you were spending a lot more time in, yep. in Poland. I don't know if that is a simplification of your biography or not, but um, it, it is hard to. Uh, you know what's going on in the world and what's going on in Poland, and I mean this is very much set in a post-Cold War um, era, and there is the element of your parents, but it, it, it's it's hard to not imagine that there isn't something that you are seeing mm -hmm. um, about Poland, about the world right now that's that makes you feel like the story between '49 and, and '64 is is relevant. Not that you've made a specific allegory or a metaphor, but it. I mean, I'm sure it's something that has come up when this film is screened there. Um, is it a discussion? I'm wondering if it, how much of that is conscious, how much of that is, you know, you having your foot both east-west and, and kind of... 
Well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's not the main motive for making the <laughs> film, needless to say. I mean, but the echoes are, are there, inevitably. And as soon, you know, as soon as you look at the social, the political background of, of, of our story, you know, the, the echoes are, are there, clearly. Um, I mean, we live in a, a very... We live in historical times, you know. It would be very curious how it will be described in 50 years' time what we're going through now. Not just Poland, of course, you know, the States, Brazil. So some, there's a huge paradigm shift. Stalinism is clearly defined, you know, so I, I kind of, I know and I portray its effect on, on, on relations, on characters and so on quite clearly. What we're going through now is a little bit, we're, we're all confused, you know. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's not exactly fascism what's taking over, it's some new form of, of social, um, but it's some, some new kind of social phenomenon. It's also something to do with changing technology. You know? So, so there are huge differences. But these authoritarian governments, you know, obviously are repeating certain patterns from the past. You know, and, and the way some governments, you know, in Central Europe, Poland, Hungary, or Russia, Turkey, uh, how they try to co-opt or manipulate culture to suit their purposes, you know, there are some echoes. Of course, nobody gets arrested yet, nobody gets uh, killed, <laughs> but the tendency is clearly there, you know. There's one correct narrative of our history and there's one correct way of making art um, and how, you know, and uh, how do we force, uh, you know, filmmakers and writers to, to, to understand our vision of the world, you know. So, so we have to really be, be, be cautious, you know. We have to be very careful and keep doing, you know, doing films independently, ideology-free. But again, you know, you have to keep the proportions, you know. What, you know, Stalinism was, was, a, was, a, was, a, was a bloody dictator, you know, dictatorship and, and, a, and, a, and a police state, you know. We're not there yet, you know, but we have to keep an eye. Uh, it is a wonderful, beautiful film, um, and I, I, you know, seeing it a second time, the layers that I, you know, like any great, great film, the layers and uh, in seeing it the second time, it just deepens. It's, it's. Um, I've been a big fan of yours, but um, for a while, but the the clarity and the sharpness and the preciseness um, uh, that you have in this film is is on a, is on another level. It's a, it's a, it's a masterwork, and I. It, People need to see this a few times, I think. Um, but uh, thank you for spending the time. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.